0: thaddeus ellenberg presents casual friday written and read by thaddeus Allenberg. This month, I present to you a four-part special event entitled Beyond the Limit's Edge, which will tell the history of an epic cycling race in the American South known by millions as the Tour of Appalachia. Every June, both small towns and big cities throughout the region are transformed into slices of European heaven as they welcome the world's top road cyclists. Rebel flags are replaced with the colors of Italy, France, Spain, Germany, and other countries. Roadside pie and peanut stands push out crepes and Wienerschnitzel. Schools close and work stops, as citizens turn out in droves to show their support in a festival-like atmosphere. This week we begin our journey with the race's origins, and the remarkable story of its creators in The Breakaway. The Birth of Something Really Great The now legendary race was the brainchild of brothers and longtime cycling enthusiast Marcel and Enzo Bocconi. Italian immigrants living in eastern Tennessee in the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains, the Bacconi brothers were laborers turned rum runners in the early days of Prohibition. They made a living smuggling forbidden spirits across state lines, white lightning as it pertained to the Tennessee Valley. Speed was paramount, and the Bocconis were innovators of their time. Similar to the preliminary efforts of the 24 Hours of Le Mans in France at the beginning of the 20th century, where early auto aficionados modified their engines to test performance and endurance, Appalachian bootleggers souped up their early hot rods to outrun the authorities during transport of their illegal cargo. And while the thrill of racing down winding mountain roads and taking chances along treacherous ridge runs sent bootleggers to the limit, and would eventually lead to the birth of organized auto racing in America, the Bocconi brothers opted for two tires instead of four, a stance that sent them pedaling straight into the history books. To the amusement of rival rum runners, Marcel and Enzo swore up and down the mountain that they could evade any lawman with nothing but their bicycles and a few spare tires. No bootlegger during Prohibition served more time behind bars than the Bocconi brothers. Oh, so mild and so divine In a 1955 article published in a French newspaper, cycling journalist Jules Menard said the following with respect to the brothers. It isn't as though they were poor cyclists. Quite the contrary, in fact. They were expert cyclists. But they were trying to outpace cars. Never understood that. After their unsuccessful criminal career and a short stint in the manufacturing of novelty spinning jinnies of which they fashioned together with bicycle wheels and tried desperately to get onto the shelves of Pinky's General Store, Marcel and Enzo Bacconi set their sights on an audacious undertaking that would rival the cycling classics and grand tours of the day, a week-long non-stop race marathon on the soon-to-be-constructed Bocconi Velodrome which they planned to lay in the center of the nearby Townsburg, Tennessee. 168 hours of continuous riding. It was to be the greatest cycling spectacle ever witnessed. However, the Bocconi brothers soon realized that not only was building a velodrome no simple task, but the logistics of virtually rearranging an entire town square for a temporary event would be extremely costly and with no guarantee of a return for the participating town. Appalachian historian Kathleen Gray wrote of this turning point for the Bocconis in her book, The Forgotten Heartland. The race was halted after a unanimous vote by the Townsburg Town Council. Marcel and Enzo Bocconi were crushed, but their spirits remained intact. They returned to the drawing board in search of another host town when Marcel, the businessman of the two, had an epiphany. Why limit ourselves, he reportedly asked his brother Enzo during an aperitivo of ice cream sodas and french fries at the local drugstore. Why not hold our race in several towns and make them pay us? Marcel was full of ambition. The brothers knew that a road race was their answer. A race that would draw the same attention and excitement as the legendary three-week grand tours across the Atlantic the brothers so admired. The Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia. The brothers would call their race the Tour of Appalachia. In 1984, longtime friend of the Bocconi brothers and fellow cyclist, Benjamin McKinney, spoke of the famed founders in a documentary cataloging the tour of Appalachia's 50th anniversary. Enzo wanted to replicate the exhilaration of the big stage races in Europe. He loved cycling and dreamt of being a professional cyclist himself. And Marcel... well, Marcel thought this was, you know, a great way to make a buck. Marcel really took to the capitalistic essence of America, even though we were in a depression. He didn't care. He just kept talking about how much money they were going to make. We can sell t-shirts and tickets and concessions and charge way above market, he used to say. We're going to be rich. He kept repeating that to Enzo. We're going to be rich. I remember because he had this crazed, maniacal look in his eyes, almost dastardly. Maybe it was because of his mustache. And the cape. He had found this old cape in a trunk and started wearing it. He wore it everywhere. Enzo was pretty off-put by the cape. Maybe you just wear it on special occasions, Enzo would say. You know, hinting. That would always upset Marcel. He would usually just mouth something offensive at Enzo and retire to his room with a bottle of wine and play his favorite Gigi record real loud. You know, so we could all hear it. Sure, they were doing something really great. Hell, we all were. But there was tension early on twenty stages in three weeks, covering 2,500 miles with one rest day, the tour of Appalachia would follow the Appalachian mountain chain south to north, passing through several states from Georgia to New York, and would reach the heights of Mount Shear of North Carolina's Blue Ridge Mountains, Culver's Dome, and the Devil's Mistress in Virginia. Although nothing quite as dizzying as the beyond category climbs of the Alps and Pyrenees, or even the Rockies for that matter the tour would serve as an equal test for the world's greatest cyclists. The Bocconis invited the biggest names they knew. Of the Italian riders, there was Benito Palazzo, Vincenzo Moretti, and the immensely popular two-time Giro winner Angelo Rossi. From France, there was Tour of Flanders winner Jean-Baptiste Pascal, seven-time stage winner of the Tour de France Romain Jacquinot, and Raoul Girard, as well as famed Luxembourg riders Gilbert Diedrich, and François Hahn, and two-time Paris-Roubaix winner Jacobus Dameron from Belgium. Similar to cycling promotion in Europe during the 10s and 20s, Marcel Bacconi used rival newspapers from the tour's participating cities and towns to not only create a buzz, but put up the necessary operating costs, as well as the prize money, which was set at $300, with a daily prize of $20 for the stage winner. Five time tour of Appalachia stage winner, Benjamin McKinney, expanded on the subject. In Europe, the writers were clearing fifteen and twenty thousand for first place in a grand tour, and upwards of five and six thousand dollars for the one day classics. But Marcel didn't want to pay them that much, and he didn't care who knew it. They should be paying me, he'd scream. He saw the prize money as a hindrance. Unnecessary overhead is what he liked to say. Sure, Marcel had the funds. He was getting thousands from the newspapers in Atlanta, Chattanooga, Richmond, but he wouldn't raise the purse. In fact, when Enzo brought it up, Marcel hiked up the rider's entry fee by $20. You wanna go 30, he screamed at Enzo. How about 40? Just keep trying to help. Enzo, he was hurt. It was a slap in the face, a middle finger to cycling and the riders he loved. Who were the ones that would be leaving it all on the road? It was Marcel's idea to use the dying kid to promote the race and, you know, get all the pros to come over since the money wasn't going to bring them. Who's going to say no to a dying boy, Marcel would say over and over, typically while premping in the mirror, usually straightening his top hat. By this point, he had already adopted the uh, famous Marcel Bocconi top hat in addition to the cape. The next day, we went down to the coal mines to, as Marcel put it, snatch the first kid with a face full of soot we see. Hell, we must have seen 40 or 50 of them under the age of 10 just as we pulled up in Marcel's new coupe. They all ran over and wanted to sit behind the steering wheel. You know, so they could pretend like they were driving. Please, mister, please let us drive. Marcel pretended not to hear them. He kept tapping his ear with a confused look on his face while he revved the engine. Actually, when we first pulled up, Marcel had driven into a hole. When we were leaving, he got all the kids to rock the car free. Anyway, Marcel ran over to this real sickly-looking kid and hoisted him up into the air like he had won something. The kid didn't know what to think. Marcel dressed him up in these oversized clothes and told everybody he was shrinking. He created this bogus charity and everything. Sympathy funds is what he called them. He paraded that kid all over the place, held press conferences, posed for journalists. Before we knew it, the newspapers were printing all this benefit hoopla and the donations started pouring in. By that time, Marcel had enough funds for 10 races, and Enzo, he was so embarrassed he could hardly show his face. The race and its official route was announced on December 3rd, 1933, and was published within the pages of the highest bidder, the Atlanta Daily Gazette. The much-anticipated race was just six months away, and Marcel and Enzo Bacconi were barely speaking. The First Tour After roughly a year of organizing, with Enzo Bocconi handling race logistics and his brother Marcel focused on promotion, the inaugural tour of Appalachia was staged in June of 1934. The field consisted of 112 riders, which were made up of the world's top professionals, as well as anyone who felt they had the stamina for such a daunting endeavor. The professionals were divided into five national teams of eight riders, from the USA, Italy, France, Spain, and Belgium. The remaining riders raced as individuals, an aspect of the tour that still remains today, though qualifying races across the globe have been implemented. Stage 1 of the first tour of Appalachia departed from Atlanta on June 3rd outside the Ponce de Leon Diner in Margaret Mitchell Square at 8.55 a.m. The route headed north to Chattanooga by way of New Encoda, the former capital of the Cherokee Nation. A ceremonial start saw race promoter Marcel Bocconi lead the entire field through downtown Atlanta along Peachtree Street before racing commenced. Noted cycling photographer Vivian Porter, who was on hand for the momentous start, wrote of the occasion in the memoir From the Road's Lens. The atmosphere was palpable, full of energy and excitement. The main thoroughfare was lined for blocks with cheering fans. The riders were packed shoulder to shoulder and wearing their nation's colors. Rossi, Pascal, Diedrich, they were all in attendance. There was no doubting this was going to be a battle and the start of something exceptional for years to come. The riders were ready and the crowd's excitement had reached its highest level. The exhilaration was like nothing I had ever experienced. When all of a sudden a man in a black cape and top hat ran out into the middle of the street with his bike. Okay, let's make some money, he shouted and saddled his bike. It was infamous race promoter, Marcel Bacconi. Everyone was very confused, including myself. He began arguing with several other men, including some of the riders. He spat at Francis Laroe. A man tried pulling him out of the street. It was his brother and race director, Enzo Bacconi. Marcel shoved him to the ground and yelled back at the riders and said, You work for me. Marcel then ran over to the crowd and stole a spectator's cane. He jumped on his bike, screamed tally-ho, and signaled to the main field with the cane to follow him. Marcel Bocconi rode ahead of the riders for two blocks until his cape got caught in his gears and started choking him. His bicycle came to a halt in the middle of the street. The peloton swallowed him up and the race was off. After the first week, only 57 riders of the original 112 remained. Henry Dumas had stolen two stage wins from Andre Britton, both in sprints to the line. But it was race favorite, Angelo Rossi, that was leading the general classification by 3 minutes and 48 seconds after a dominating climb on menez Bald. Rossi donned the now highly coveted variegated jersey, or patchwork jersey, which, like the maillot jaune, or yellow jersey, of the Tour de France, is worn by the overall race leader. The major road cycling races, especially the three-week grand tours, are unique in that there are several competitions within the overall race, typically awarded based on time or accumulated points. There are jerseys awarded for sprints, mountains, amateurs, as well as the aforementioned GC, or general classification. Denoting the region's heritage with its patchwork design, The original variegated jersey, similar to a quilted short sleeve shirt, would change drastically over the years. And although the leaders of the first few years of races would be riding 5 plus degrees warmer than the rest of the field, the jersey was a rapid growing symbol of cycling progression, destined for grandeur. Angelo Rossi began the second week of the race in the legendary jersey when the tour left Alamie, Virginia on stage 8 and would wear its colors all the way into New York Central Park to claim victory in the first ever Tour of Appalachia. Although the inaugural race was a grand success, its foundation would soon be subject to a major shake-up in the light of scandal and cheating, and in the coming years would lose ground to a world at war and a country pledged to production. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday, written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg, with an introduction by Nicole Kalasic, and artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scovel. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.